Welcome to Lead On, the program where we talk about practical issues related to ministry leadership. I'm Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, and it's my privilege each week to talk with you about practical challenges that pastors, deacons, elders, other program leaders, and missionaries and ministry leaders like me that work in an organization, practical problems that we face in our ebb and flow of work of ministry leadership. How do we solve some of these dilemmas? And as we've started this year, I've been talking about a number of different issues that have emerged from surveying and other sources about the challenges pastors are facing right now. Some of these pa uh, challenges are certainly related to the pandemic, but others are more timeless. They're just simply the continuing problems and challenges that ministry leaders face, no matter the circumstances. Well, one of the things that showed up in surveying recently about the concerns that pastors and other church leaders have is how hard it is to find people who will take on ministry responsibilities in churches or organizations. And I don't mean employees. I mean, of course, volunteers. People who will step forward and lead youth ministries and children's ministries. People who will step forward to go on mission trips and to uh, staff up projects that take place in communities. As one pastor said, it's harder today to get people to commit than ever in my ministry. And another pastor told me, I'm really dis discouraged and disappointed at the low level of commitment that people have to engaging in meaningful ministry today. Now, the reality is, while there are a lot of uh, large flagship churches in Southern California, and as I've said before on the program, we celebrate that, the reality is most churches are small, and most churches are going to be primarily staffed by volunteers who do the work of ministry. They lead the music, they teach the children, they drive the vans uh, to the activities, uh, they prepare the food for the, uh, for the parties. Uh, they are the ones who actually get the work done. And how do you get more and more of these people to engage, first of all, in some kind of meaningful, meaningful ministry in your church or organization? And then even more, how do you help some of them to rise to take on leadership responsibilities? So today, let's talk about how to get this done. The first thing I want to talk about is what motivates people to engage in ministry and to take on responsibilities of ministry leadership? What is it that motivates people? Well, first of all, some things that don't motivate people. Uh, people are not motivated by guilt or by shame. Uh, they're not motivated by browbeating or by heavy recruitment pitches. Well, <clears throat> you might get someone to do something once, maybe even twice using some of these strategies, but people are not motivated to invest months or years of their lives in a project or something like that, unless they have a much deeper motivation. So I think the motivation that really drives most people forward is that they feel like they're committing to a compelling vision. They really feel like they're competing, committing to a compelling vision. They see that the church or the organization is accomplishing something that really aligns with their values and their commitments and what they really want to see uh, accomplished in our world, especially in our world as we do ministry uh, in Jesus' name. And so when a person finds an organization that has clearly articulated vision and is actually going somewhere, they are much more likely to commit themselves to participating in helping that organization to actualize its vision. That's why it's so important 
that one of the primary skills of senior leaders, pastors, presidents, uh, others like us who have the oversight responsibility for churches and ministry organizations, that one of our compelling, uh, most significant, uh, uh, most important uh, qualities is the capacity to cast clear vision. When you can tell people, here's where we're going, here's what it will look like when we get there, and here's how we're going to achieve this together, they are much more likely to commit and to give themselves to the task at hand. Now, compelling vision is, of course, one strong motivator. Another strong motivator is love and obedience to God. If people really believe that what you're asking them to do is an expression of obedience to God and an opportunity for them to demonstrate love for God, they are much more likely to commit to the task than they are if they feel like it's out of duty or responsibility or to solve some sort of blame or shame that maybe have put on them if they didn't get involved. Love for God and the capacity to demonstrate that love and service and obedience by what you're asking them to do. So the two most compelling reasons why people engage in ministry, commit themselves to being involved in the work, or even rise to leadership in churches and ministry organizations are clearly articulated vision that people feel like they they can engage and the capacity to demonstrate love and obedience to God through what you're asking them to do. Now, there may be many other motivations, but these two are central. And so that really brings the question back to those of us who are in leadership and who have more visible and overseeing responsibility for churches and organizations. Are we clearly casting vision, laying out where we're going and how we're going to get there and what it will look like when we've achieved the vision that we believe God has given us? And second, are we really challenging people to fall in love with God, to stay in love with Him, and to see their expressions of service as acts of devotion to Him and for Him in the world in which we're living? Those are our responsibilities. Keep on casting vision. Keep on calling people to fall more deeply in love with God and to express that through service and through doing things that really demonstrate their devotion and their commitment to Him. And so I would say start there. If you're in one of those churches or ministry organizations where you're having a hard time finding the workers you need, finding the volunteers you need, or if you've got a few, but you really want their commitment level to be increased and you want their devotion to the task at hand to be enhanced, The way you accomplish that is by casting vision and calling people to express love for God by fulfilling and doing what you're asking them to do. Now, that's the first question. What motivates people to get more involved? A second question then is, where do these future leaders and future workers come from? Now, when I've asked this question in leadership conferences and in classrooms, Typically, I I get the immediate response, well, they're going to come from out of the pews, or they're going to come from out of your membership, or they're going to come from among the people that you're ministering to. And yes, there is something true about that, but that is not the right answer. That's just not the right answer. The workers that you need, the leaders that you need, are not necessarily already sitting in front of you in pews or chairs, and they are not already necessarily a member 
of your church or a participant in your organization. They are instead often, particularly as it relates to church, they are instead often unbelievers who are members of the community, not yet members of your church. Now, I call this the pyramid of leadership development, the pyramid of worker recruitment. It's how you get more people engaged in your ministry situation. The first step is to share the gospel with the lost or with unbelievers. This is where your future workers and future leaders are going to come from. They're not primarily going to come from the people that you already have in your church. They're going to come from the community of unbelievers around you who are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then the second step on the pyramid is that you then assimilate and stabilize those converts and help them to become vital part of what you're trying to accomplish. So first, we share the gospel with unbelievers. And then second, as some of those unbelievers become converts, we assimilate and stabilize those converts so that they become a part of our church or a part of our ministry. And then the third step, making disciples of converts. So unbelievers turn into converts, and then converts turn into disciples. And then finally, leaders come from those disciples that you've made. So unbelievers become converts, converts become disciples, disciples become leaders. Now, hey, I know we're on the radio. If you can imagine a giant pyramid, however, and put the base of the pyramid, the unconverted or unchurched or unsaved or the lost in your neighborhood, and then the converts a little higher on the pyramid and the disciples a little higher and the the, the, the leaders at the very top of the pyramid, you'll see what I'm talking about. How do you make the top pyramid of leaders larger? Well, you already know. The way to do that is to make the whole pyramid bigger. So if you want more leaders emerging at the top or at the outcome of your process, you have to enlarge the base and be reaching more and more unbelievers with the gospel. Now, I'll just give you one very practical example of how this worked out in my ministry. One of the most consequential things I've been involved with was planting a church near Portland, Oregon. In 1989, my wife and I and our three preschool children moved halfway across the United States to plant a church in a suburb of Portland, Oregon. It was, in many ways, my life's dream. And I thought at the time that I was going there to devote the rest of my life to building a church in that community. Now, while we had a handful of believers that wanted to help us plant the church, we knew that our church really needed to be planted in such a way that it appealed to and met the needs of unbelievers in the community because we knew that if we were going to have a really strong church in that community, we could not achieve it by colonizing Christians from other congregations. That might have looked like church growth, but it really would be deceptive. It really wasn't kingdom growth because we were just uh, reshuffling the sheep, so to speak, from one herd to another. We knew that we had to have a church that reached unbelievers. And if we were going to have more future workers in that church, we knew that those future workers were going to have to come from that unbelieving pool that was our community. When you think about it, 
That's how every new church starts when it goes into a community. It starts with a few believers, just a handful, who then go into the community sharing the gospel, and as they see more and more people coming to faith in Christ, it's those unbelievers who become converts that have to be stabilized, made into disciples, and then ultimately some turned into leaders. And so we went to work. And in fact, we had uh, what we called a preview Sunday, which was the Sunday before we had our official opening. And on that preview Sunday, we actually encouraged our little core group of believers, don't invite your friends because we're not even sure we can pull this off yet. We're meeting in an elementary school. We're trying to get set up on a Sunday. We don't even know how the equipment's going to work yet. Almost anything can go wrong. This is practice church. But you know what happened? One of our families just couldn't wait. So they invited their best friends who were not yet believers to come to practice church Sunday with them. When that couple came in, they were the first people to visit our church in a public worship service, the very first unbelievers who had come to experience what we were going to be offering beginning the following Sunday. The guy's name was Steve. His wife was Kathy. They had two daughters. I befriended Steve that day and almost immediately asked him if he'd like to start helping us with our new church. And he said, "Uh, I've never been a part of a church. I don't really know anything about church. I said, that's okay. You're going to fit in great here. And I said, we're going to need some help in some different ways. And I'll talk about that a little more later in the program. But I said, I'd just like to know if you'd like to get involved helping us out. He said, you know, I I really kind of would. I'm really interested in this. I've never heard of anybody doing anything like start a church. And so that was the first person who started helping us. Now, that was even before he was a convert. But a few weeks later, he became the first convert in our congregation. And as a result of his conversion, we started helping him to assimilate and stabilize and then grow as a disciple. And fairly early on, we started connecting him to ministry opportunities until finally, fast forwarding the story, some years later, he was actually elected uh, to one of the highest leadership roles we had in that church. It started with an unbeliever and ultimately it produced a leader. Now, just because your church has been going for 40 or 50 or 75 years doesn't mean that this process has changed. The place where you should be looking for your future workers and your future leaders is not just among your membership, but it's in your community of people who need to hear the gospel, come to faith in Jesus, experience conversion, then be stabilized as new converts, moved into a discipleship process, and then ultimately leaders being produced. If your church is going to have more preschool workers, if it's going to have a youth director, if your your church is going to have more outreach leaders, if it's going to have more caregivers, if it's going to have more people to visit shut-ins, if your church is going to have more people to engage in ministry and to really engage in it in such a way that some of them even grow to be leaders in ministry, you're going to have to simply focus on reaching more and more people with the gospel. And as you do that, that leadership pyramid gets larger And as that base gets bigger, of course, the top is going to get bigger as well. I could spend the rest of the program telling you story after story after story of people that came to faith in Jesus Christ through our church's ministry, were assimilated as converts into our uh, body of Christ, the church, then moved into a discipleship program that very soon enabled them to start working in some capacity in our church, and then finally saw them emerge as leaders who really worked hard with us to extend the ministry of our church. So 
the, the problem we're talking about today is how to get more people engaged in ministry in local congregations and in ministry organizations. How do we get people to make commitment, to buy in, to get involved? Well, I said at the beginning, you got to get the right motivation. You've got to have articulated vision that people can buy into. And then secondarily, you've got to have a motivation of loving God and seeing and people seeing that the service you're asking them to do is actually a way to demonstrate their love and devotion to God. Those are the two key motivators. And then that second big question, where are these people going to come from? Well, some of them may already be in your church, and that's great if they are. But if you're going to have dozens or hundreds of more people joining your team, you're going to have to look outside your congregation to current people who are unbelievers and say about them, how can I lead them to faith in Jesus, assimilate, disciple, and then train them so that ultimately leaders will emerge from the non-Christian community around me? Well, there are some real motivating convictions that I have and that I want to share with you that I hope you'll adopt, which will help you to be motivated more in this process. Now, I've talked about what motivates others to join the process, and I've talked about how the process unfolds. But now, what is it that motivates you as a leader yourself to really engage this a challenge of assimilating, training, and placing more people in leadership? Well, let me give you some ideas. First of all, I'm motivated by the reality that my leadership is a stewardship. You know, a steward is someone who takes that which doesn't belong to him or her and makes the best out of it for their owner. As a ministry leader, I'm not an owner of the ministry that I lead. I'm just a steward or a manager of it. It really belongs to God. And so my responsibility is to make the most out of my opportunity, not making it all about me, but instead making it all about God and his kingdom and the longevity of impact that we want to have through the organization that I'm leading. So I'm motivated to get involved in this process and to work hard at facilitating more people coming into leadership because my leadership is a stewardship. I've received it from God. I want to make the best impact I can for him, and I want to make the broadest impact possible with, the, with as many people as possible because I'm a steward of this position, not an owner. A second motivation I have is that I realize my tenure is limited. Now, you may say, well, not mine. I'm a pastor, and I've committed my life to my church. Okay, good for you. I hope you have. But you just told me that your tenure is limited to the length of your life. So no matter if your life entirely is committed to a church or ministry organization, your tenure is still limited. There's going to come a time when you're not going to be the leader anymore. And when that time comes... The organization will either be in decline or dying, or the organization will be poised for future growth and success because you recognized my tenure is limited, so therefore I am mandated. If my organization or my church is going to have a long-term future, I am mandated to find more leaders, put them into place, and help them to become everything they can be so that our organization is healthy for the long haul. That leads me to another motivation, and that is that as a leader, part of my motivation in ministry is building an organization that lasts for a long time. Now, I know that today there's a, there's a lot of discussion. I might even do a program on this someday. There's a lot of discussion about the tension between organic and organizational ministry. 
I know people say, well, I just want an organic ministry. You know, I just want to be about coffee and conversation. And I just want to be about meeting the needs of people and just connecting. And, you know, I'm for all that. I really am. But if that's all you're going to do, then you're going to have a very limited impact because you're not going to be able to do any more than you can do in the moment with one person. But if you recognize that part of your responsibility is also building an organization, then you will be motivated because you will say, I'm going to build an organization that's going to make a greater impact than I can make personally and also have more longevity of impact than I will have just with my lifetime. I think about my wife. She became the director of a church preschool ministry that had uh, two classes and about six workers that were manning that program. By the time she finished with it a few years later, they had eight classes meeting on Sunday with over 60 workers in that process. Some of the workers were greeters, some were teachers, some were outreach leaders, all kinds of people working that she had recruited, placed, and trained. We stepped away from that church about five years ago and moved on to a new ministry assignment in a different church. We were back visiting the old church just a few weeks ago, and the current a director of the program that my wife had grown so much, wanted to meet with my wife to talk with her about the organization and how to keep it growing and how to enlarge it and what were the practical ways that she went about uh, shaping and expanding the organization and bringing more people in and uh, finding more converts that she could turn into disciples and disciples into leaders. And my wife had a wonderful afternoon of fleshing out for this young leader what it means to build an organization. Now, for some of us, that comes more naturally than others, and I fully understand that. And again, I'm not speaking against the organic aspects of ministry where you're connecting with people one-on-one and sharing coffee and conversation, as I already said. I'm not against any of that. I'm just simply saying that's not enough if you're really going to make a long or broad impact in your current situation and then a long impact after you've stepped aside. And then another motivation for me is that I recognize that part of my Christian responsibility, which emerges out of my theological convictions, is developing people. You know, the Bible has something, uh, teaches something called sanctification. And uh, a very short definition of that is to be made more holy or to be made more like Jesus Christ. But the implication of sanctification is that you're going to be growing and changing and improving and developing as a Christian person. Well, as a Christian leader, doesn't it then stand a reason or come to a logical conclusion that if people around me are supposed to be growing in their sanctification, in their spiritual development, that as the leader, I'm supposed to be facilitating that? And so my responsibility, theologically, to facilitate sanctification seems to be a natural outgrowth of the biblical mandate that all people grow or all Christians grow in their sanctification. And then finally, and this may be the hardest to hear, especially if you're discouraged, but one of the things that motivates me uh, to put more people into ministry and more people into leadership is that I really believe that people are competent and they can be trusted to lead effectively and that they will find their greatest fulfillment when they do. Now, a number of years ago, I worked with a guy and when I started working with him, I didn't realize it, but he was a little bit burned out. He said to me one day, you know, you've really restored my confidence in people. When I started working with you, I thought, you know, people are basically stupid. 
but you've helped me see that's not true. And you have such confidence and ability to trust people and to motive, to, uh, to work with them and to help motivate them and to, and to really place them so that they can flourish in ministry leadership and in ministry work. And I thought, well, thank you for that. Well, a few weeks later, I called him in. I said, Hey, remember what you told me that day about people being basically stupid? And he said, yeah. I said, well, today I'm so down. I think you're right. <laughs> and so it happens to all of us. It happens to all of us that we get discouraged, but listen, Just because someone lets you down or someone doesn't come through doesn't mean people can't be trusted and can't flourish when you give them the opportunity. And when they do, it'll make your heart sing because of how you were instrumental in helping a person discover the fullness of what it means to serve and to contribute and then ultimately to lead in a church or in a kingdom ministry setting. Well, today, today it's been like part one of this presentation. We've talked about motivation. We've talked about how it happens. We talked about what drives us to develop more people into ministry workers and then ultimately into leaders. We'll talk about practical ways to do this more specifically next week. Put this first part into practice and we'll get back together in a few days as you lead on.